That's awesome. So no great bumper video today. I started to come up with a wee-ma-wapa, wee-ma-wapa, and I thought, nah. I looked for cool lion stories. I couldn't find any. They all ended fairly badly. I thought, well, maybe we could show some pictures of Simba and Mustafa and, uh, yeah, Scar. I thought, nah, that doesn't really convey what I want to convey. And so then I thought about, well, what about this? How many people are cat people? If you're a cat person, raise your hand or you can clap. That's cool. Dog people? Okay, then I feel good about this story. I, I, I was, I was kind of weighing whether I was really going to tell this or not based on how many people were. When I was a kid, I always heard there were two kind of people in the world, those who root for Tom and those who root for Jerry. For today, it's going to be those who are dog people and those who are cat people. Cat story, kind of like a lion story, right? Close enough? So if you're a cat person, you need to take notes. This will be very, very beneficial for you. I'm not a cat person. We have a dog, a little Boston Terrier who fancies herself a cat slayer. Um, a few weeks ago, she spotted the neighbor's cat out in the yard. The cat spotted her, but our little dog, Coco, didn't realize that. And so I'm watching this transpire, and I'm actually kind of egging it on. I'm like, Coco, look at that cat. Get, get, get that cat. And the cat lays down with her back turned towards the dog, and Coco starts kind of slinking out across the yard. And she thinks she's sneaking up on this cat. And she gets about two or three feet away. And the cat turns around. It doesn't even hiss at her. The cat just kind of turns around and looks at her and flicks her tail. And Coco jumps about three feet and yelps like she's been slaughtered and turns around, tucks tail, and runs back to the house. That's our lion slayer of a cat. I want to be a lion slayer, and we're going to talk about that, but not that kind of lion slayer. If you're a cat person, here's the advice. How to bathe your cat in eight easy steps. Now, we all know cats don't like to be bathed. Write it down, take notes. Step one, thoroughly clean the toilet. <laughs> Write it down. Step two, lift both lids and add shampoo. Step three, find and soothe the cat petting it very softly and gently, talking very sweetly to it as you carry it towards the bathroom. Step four. This is crucial. In one swift move, it has to be one swift move, you place the cat in the toilet, close both lids, and you jump up on top so the cat can't get out. Now the cat will self-agitate, producing ample suds. Ignore the ruckus coming from inside. The cat's enjoying this. It's getting clean for the first time, probably in a long time. Step five is very important also. After the cat has self-agitated for about four or five minutes, you have to flush the toilet at least five times. This is the power rinse. It will get all the suds off. And again, ignore the ruckus from inside. The cat is enjoying this. Step six, or step seven. Actually, the flush was step six. Um, Step seven, you need a partner, have them open the outside door and hold the door open. You stand as far away from the toilet as you can get, and in one swift move, with your foot, kick both lids, op lids open and jump back as far as you can. Step eight, the cat will rock it out of the toilet, run outside, and air dry 
and it will be happy and clean, and you'll be... Now, before you send me any hate mail, I have to tell you, I love cats. Jared, send all of your correspondence to Jared, because Bonnie had a beautiful Himalayan Persian one time, so I've been told, until they tried this. And on step eight, when it went outside to air dry, it never came back. It just kept trucking. Jared at connectcitychurch.com. That's where you send your hate mail if, if you're a cat lover. No, seriously, I want to be a lion slayer. We're going to look at probably one of the most well-known popular stories in the Bible, the story of Daniel and the lion's den. Even if you didn't grow up in church, this is going to drive me nuts. You know what? I don't care how it looks, if it will function. If, even if you didn't grow up in church, you've heard the story of Daniel and the lion's den. Today, I hope that we get a little different look at it and we learn something from it. As we begin to go into two cities and rebuild in two cities, we are facing resistance and will continue to face resistance. And Daniel faced some resistance in his time that I hope we can glean and learn from. Let's jump right in. Daniel 6, verse 1. It should be up here on the screen behind me. This is from the ESV. And it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful. And no error or fault was found in him. Now listen, if you were fixing to be promoted, let's say you were going to be the head of a big area, governor of the state of Georgia, okay? We won't say president, governor of the state of Georgia. And the only deal was nobody could find any fault in you. How many of you could pass that test? It would not be hard to find dirt on me. Anybody who knows me knows that it's real easy. In fact, you could have found enough dirt on me just in the conversation that I had with my wife on the way to church this morning, probably, to keep me from qualifying. That was before she put me out of the car and made me walk the rest of the way. If you count what happened after that, then you probably would have said I needed to get saved or something. I'm just kidding, she didn't make me walk. I left her stranded on the mountain last week. That's another story. Seriously, think about that statement. They found no fault in him. He's the head of a kingdom, third, one of three, and they can't find anything wrong? Wow. And then they said, verse 5, these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Okay, so they already know there's only one chance that we have. And the enemy has already spoken his first lie to them, and it sounds something like this. Why does Daniel get promoted? Why is he getting the job? Don't you deserve this as much as he does? You've worked just as hard as he. You've worked harder than he has. He's... He, He's an exile from Judah. I mean, come on. 
They're going to put him in charge. And you start listening to that lie. You start going, yeah, I do deserve that promotion more than they. How dare they promote him? Man, I've been working hard here for a long time. I should be the one getting promoted. And we start believing the lie of the enemy. And it always gets us self-centered and self-focused. We start looking at things from our own perspective instead of from a God perspective. And they already knew. We got one shot. If we can find something wrong with his religion, if we can find just one little thing, we can trap him. He had been in captivity more than 70 years at this stage. And they could find no fault in him. You think about all of our leaders, all our Christian leaders that we've seen fall. Immorality, different things. We hear about them in the news all the time. And yet you look at Billy Graham, who for many, many years has stood as a faithful witness to Christ and a faithful example. And nothing, no fault has been found in him. And I can tell you, it's not by accident. We had a good family friend, Pastor Bob DeLon, who worked for the Billy Graham Association for years. My mom was his caregiver for for him and his wife before they passed away. And he used to tell us how Dr. Graham, when he would go to a city, he would send teams of men into the hotels to investigate the rooms and the floors that, where he would be going. Because almost inevitably, they would find prostitutes in one of the rooms and photographers hiding at the end of the floor waiting to snap a picture. Billy Graham was with a prostitute. So they, he was very diligent. He was wise enough to know, I'm a target. People are trying to set me up. And because he was diligent and wise, he was able to remain above reproach. I think that's one of the same pictures that we see here with Daniel. It wasn't by accident that for 80 years he remained that way. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. And all the presidents of the kingdom and the prefects and the satraps and the counselors and the governors all agreed. I'm sorry, back up, verse 6. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king, and this is what they said to him. Flattery dripping from their lips. Oh, king, live forever. All of the presidents of the kingdom and the prefects and the satraps and the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Here's another lie. I didn't even, I've never caught this until this week when I was looking at this. All of the satraps have said that you need to do this, O king. Not true. Darius wasn't, I mean, Daniel wasn't in on that conversation. You think if they had asked Daniel, hey, let's go to Darius and tell him um, we're going to get him to sign a thing saying that you can't worship your God. There's no way. 
So they just kind of throw that in there, this little lie, and Darius kind of buys it. He gets puffed up a little bit. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. They shouldn't worship anybody but me. 30 days. Darius is a pagan. Okay, it's not a big deal to him at this stage anyway. So, verse 9. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. This is probably my favorite verse. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before God. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he knew exactly what had happened. He knew he had been set up. He knew what the consequences were. And he did exactly what he had always done. That's amazing. How many of you know what your name means? Do you know what the meaning of your name is? Few people do. See, Daniel knew what the meaning of his name was. It was actually Daniel. Dan means judge. E means mine, and L means God. God, my judge, or God is my judge. He had a name to live up to. And he took this moment to say, God is my judge. Not King Darius. He can't judge me for praying and doing what I've been doing all my life. He can try, but he won't succeed. God is my judge. I don't stand before Darius. I don't stand before Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar or any man on earth. I stand before God and God alone, and one day I'll have to give account to him, and that's what I'm living for. And if I have to die for that, then that'll be okay. See, his whole life, he lived that way, not just at this moment, the way he wrote the book. You see it, I think it's in 128, he says something like, God has a king in one hand, he sets this one down, he sets this one up. God's in charge. And the way he ate, he looked at it as a spiritual matter, he said, God's in charge of how I eat. You think that giving me a certain food is what's going to make me look handsome and healthy and, and all of that. I'll tell you what, you give that food to those guys, and I'll eat the way God shows me, which was to refuse the king's wine and his fine meat and all that. I'll eat this way, and then we'll see who looks better. So in his eating, he declared, God is my judge. I could use some of that declaring myself. He took that seriously. And the way he interpreted dreams, he said, God gave him. I'll tell you, not only will I tell you what the dream is, then I'll tell you what God says that it means. And especially in the way that he prayed. See, he'd been in captivity more than 70 years. At this stage, Daniel was around 85 years old. He had accomplished a lot. It would have been really, really easy I think, to just go, eh, 30 days without praying, no biggie. It's just 30 days. Or he could have done the latest 
charismania chicken walk and he could have prayer walked around town and you know, done all the praying in tongues and nobody would have had to know he was praying. He could have closed the windows to his upper room and prayed, gone into his inner chamber and prayed. He could have prayed to himself. Well, it doesn't matter whether anybody really knows I'm praying. It's between me and God, right? It's a private matter. I'm much more useful to God if I'm alive than if I'm dead. If I let the lions eat me, what can I really accomplish for the kingdom? All of those things he could have used to justify not praying. And it kind of alarms me that all of those seem perfectly logical logical and acceptable to us, don't they? I can just about guarantee you I would have taken one of those options. Well, I'll still pray, but I don't have to do it this way. And in reality, any other situation, those probably would have been reasonable options for Daniel. But at this stage, at this time, he was called to make a defiant statement where he stands and he says, no, God is my judge. I don't care what it costs me. You won't trick me and you won't keep me from praying and worshiping because there was a lot more to this than just going up in his prayer room and facing Jerusalem and saying a few words. It was him worshiping. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you. O king, or the injunction which you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed, and he set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men, by agreement, they came back, and they said to the king, Know, O king, that this is the law of the Medes and Persians, that no injunction or ordinance the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. Then the king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Now see, I I think it's really interesting that Darius is saying, as a pagan who doesn't worship this God, and yet he's stressed, he, he sees something in Daniel that's real, that challenges him, and he's like, May your God deliver you. He saw a faithful witness. I I can kind of relate to that. When I was a lot younger, I managed a a restaurant in Natchez, Mississippi called the Cock of the Walk. And I was as far away from God probably at that stage of any time in my life. And there was one faithful witness to Jesus Christ in my life at that time. It was a young high school girl named Angie. Angie was one of my waitresses. And in a city full of darkness, in a restaurant full of darkness, where wickedness abounded, she stood firm as a light in that darkness. And I found myself often 
defending her and getting angry on her behalf when the other waitstaff would mock her and belittle her and make fun of her because of her faith. Because I recognized what Angie had. I'd been there before. I knew the Lord, and I knew what she had was real. I knew the peace that she had was real. And though I didn't want anything to do with God at that moment, I also didn't want anybody else messing with her. That sounds really strange, but I, I drew great comfort in knowing, you know, there's one person. And she would come to me and tell me, I'm, I'm praying for you. She came to me one time and said, our, our church needs somebody to, to run sound for an event. Would you consider doing that? Would you pray about it? I said, Angie, I'm, I'm not really on praying grounds these days. She's like, no, no, I, I believe in you. You know, I, I, God's not through with you. And when everybody else had given up, this one little girl stood faithful to Christ. And I see that in Darius. He's like, you know, I'm not sure what this is, but there's something real there. God, deliver Daniel. Daniel, may your God that you serve deliver you. We'll keep reading. Verse 17, And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed according to Dan, uh, uh, concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace, and he spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared Daniel, O servant, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the mouths of the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, king, I've done no harm. See, he says here, God was my judge. He justified my actions. I was found blameless before God. You found me guilty, Darius, because you got tricked into signing this thing. But my God found me innocent. He found me blameless. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. Now, for some reason, I don't know why, maybe it's in cartoons, we, ought, we seem to think about the lions like going to sleep and being big kitty cats, and Daniel just kind of lays down. I don't think for a minute the lions were asleep. And I'll tell you why. Because we're going to read the next verses in just a minute that we don't usually hear about when we tell the story of Daniel and the lion's den. I think the lions were frothing at the mouth, desperate to consume him. And the angel was standing there. I happen to have my own thought on who that angel was or what that angel was, but I'm not going to go into that because it's distracting. But the angel was standing there going, ah, no, no. 
If they were asleep and tranquilized like we seem to think, then the next verses don't really make sense. But look at verse 24. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they and their children and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. They consumed them. They were, they were gone before they ever hit the floor. I don't think they were tranquilized. They were vicious. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble in fear the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and he rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So in this, in Daniel being faithful, in him being defiant when he faced resistance, Darius becomes a worshiper of the, the living God. Because he was willing to just go, no, prayer is more important. Worship is more important. And in being that faithful witness, a king chooses to follow the living God. So you might say, why is this such a big deal? Why, you know, why are you getting all fired up and excited and yelling? Well, See, we're rebuilding in two cities. And as we do, we are, we have been, and we will continue to face resistance to that rebuilding. There is no doubt about it. The only way that we can make sure that we're rebuilding on the right foundation is through prayer. Lots of prayer. Seasons of prayer. How do we rebuild on purpose? We know what our purpose is, right? It's to make it simple for people to connect to God and each other and doing that, make Jesus famous. Well, how do we know if we're doing that? We pray. We ask God to know his heart. How do we know that we're, we can rebuild with power? It comes through time with God. See, we have an enemy. We're going to talk for just a minute about the thing that nobody wants to talk about. Spiritual warfare. We have an enemy. You can hear the crickets. For some reason, it's like we get afraid when anybody even mentions spiritual warfare. But Scripture makes it clear from beginning to the end. We're in a battle for our very lives for our souls, for the lives of people that we love, for the lives of people that we don't love, that we don't even like. Their lives are at stake too. And you can say all you want, well, I'm a lover, not a fighter. Doesn't matter. You're in a battle. And there is no demilitarized zone. 
You can say, well, I don't even know if I believe the devil's real. Then you've already lost a good part of the battle. Because that is exactly what he wants you to think. He doesn't want you to believe that he's real. And if you don't fight, guess what happens? Just in the natural. If you're in a fight and you don't fight back, what happens? You get bullied. You get beat up. You get hurt. I know all about not fighting, not fighting back. I grew up where fighting was bad. You don't fight back. You avoid a fight. You walk away from a fight. You don't fight. I was never taught how to fight. So, consequently, from the time I was in school until the time I was about 10 or 11, my life consisted of being bullied almost every day. I was the kid that didn't smoke or drink or cuss or do smoke dope in, in Central Florida. Yeah, at 8 and 9 and 10, all the neighbors were doing that. And so I was like the goody-goody kid, that you know, the, the preacher's kid, and they took great delight in chasing my chubby little self off the bus and me running as fast as I can, trying to beat the mob. And I never did. And I got beat up. Daily. I mean, probably it's safe to say at least three times a week. That's a conservative estimate. Because I didn't know how to fight back. I was taught that fighting was bad. Until I was about 11 and my dad got tired of hearing me come in crying and you know, and, and I think kind of it, I don't think he ever intended it for it to get like it was. You know, I think the whole idea was just, you know, you avoid a fight when you can, but we never got to the part that there's sometimes you just can't avoid a fight. And so when I was about 10 or 11, he's like, go out there and defend yourself. I'm like, how do I do that? Well, I figured it out. I went out in the front yard. He made me. It's like, no, go out there. It's like, okay. So I go out in the front yard, and it didn't take long for the two, one on each side, Wes on this side, Wesley and Bobby. Bobby, they came over into my front yard and started yin, 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 you know, and, and, and they were fixing to beat me up. And I grabbed the yard rake that was laying there. Not the short tooth kind, the, the long tooth kind, but at Central Florida, and everybody wears shorts, and I proceeded to wear them out with a rake. I cut their legs all to pieces, chased both of them as far as I could chase them, beating them with that yard rake. And I didn't get bullied anymore. They thought I was absolutely insane. <laughs> he had flipped his wig. And seriously, I learned that day to defend myself. If we don't fight back, guys, in this war... We're going to get beat up. I'll leave him alone. He'll leave me alone. Not on your life. So let's look at, because I don't want to just tell you you're in a battle. Let's talk about what we can do about it. 1 Peter 5, verse 8 and 9, gives us the warning. And it'll be up on the screen. It's a scripture we all know. Be alert and sober-minded or of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. 
So it's not just us. If you're a believer, you're in, you're joining in the same thing that's going on to believers everywhere. Let me tell you a little bit about lions, natural, in the natural, because there's a, uh, there's something that, um, that coordinates with the spiritual here. In the natural, male, adult lion, four foot tall, about that tall, eight foot long, can run 30 miles an hour in burst, kill a zebra with one swipe of its paw. There's a reason it's called the king of the jungle. These things are flipping bad, okay? I was reading it, I was like, whoa, this, I mean, you know, I mean, I know a lion's pretty incredible, but eight foot long, it's huge. But none of that impressed me as much as this. Its roar can be heard five miles away. Five miles away. I don't think Summer of Ingalls is about five miles from here. Five miles. It can stun and paralyze its victims with its roar long enough to kill them. And 1 Peter 5 says that our enemy stalks around like a roaring lion. One of his main tools, if not the main tool, is he roars, and he roars constantly all the time in our head. These conversations that we have, these conversations that you have in your head where you go, well, I can't believe she said that to me. And if I get a chance, I, next time she says that, here's what I should have said. I should have said this, and then she'd have said that, and, then, and I, and I would have said this, and I'd have clawed her eyes out. And, and, and you, you rehearse these conversations in your head? That's not a conversation you're having with yourself. Or sometimes this roar sounds like, you are so stupid, I can't believe you think that God loves you. You're worthless. You keep doing the same stupid thing over and over. You're nothing but a fill in the blank. That's all you've ever been and that's all you'll ever be. Sometimes it's the voice of our father or our mother or the bully on the playground. Our wife or our ex-wife or our husband or whoever has had significant value in your life who has spoken things that are less than true. And we hear them over and over in our head. They're so stupid. Guys, that's not our thoughts. Those are lies. And where do lies come from? Scripture says that the devil is the father of all lies. But sometimes they're a whole lot easier to believe because they're a whole lot louder than the truth. And a lot of times, they're kind of mixed with half-truths, which makes it even more difficult to fight against. 
So what do you do? How do you fight that roar? There was this um, church that apparently was doing great things for God, so much so that it got the devil himself's attention. Now, the devil is not omnipresent. He can't be more than one place at one time. But he decides he better go stop this church. So he shows up one Sunday right in the middle of the service, just like this, poof. And he starts roaring, roar, and people just take off everywhere. They're just running left and right. All the doors are being open, people screaming and freaking out. Except this one old dude, he's just sitting right down there on the front row. He's running all over the place, roaring, folks just taking off everywhere. Except this one elderly gentleman, just sitting there, looking at him. Place is finally completely empty, except this one older guy. He walks right up to him, he gets right in his face. And he said, don't you know who I am? Aren't you afraid of me? The old man looked at him and said, no, I ain't afraid of you. I've been married to your sister for 42 years. <laughs> There's a lot more bark than there is bite. The roar terrifies us sometimes. Fear will consume us. It will. So how do we stay alert and sober-minded? What do we do? Well, to be, to be sober-minded means this. It just means to have a clear head. See, if we remain alert, we remove anything from our minds that hampers good judgment. If our mind is cluttered, for example, with lustful thoughts, then it's going to be very difficult for us to be prepared to flee from Potiphar's wife, like Joseph did. If our minds are cluttered with greed and materialism, it's going to be hard for us to give our first fruits to God, isn't it? We just have to keep a clear mind. And so when those things come to mind when those lies, when we hear the roar of the enemy, we just go, no, wait a minute, that's not true. That's not who the Bible says I am. The Bible says I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. It doesn't, it doesn't say that I'm ugly. It doesn't say I'm a fat slob. That's not what the Bible says about me. But I'm looking in the mirror and I'm going, no, I can see what the mirror says. No, that's not what God says. Who are we going to believe? That's where the battle is. See, most of us, the biggest spiritual warfare we'll ever fight goes on right between our ears. We don't even have to worry about the other, there are other realms of spiritual warfare but until we can win this, we don't, even, we don't even have to worry about the other. We've got to win the battle in our head to believe the truth and to stand on the truth. And it brings us back to how you do that. You pray. And you worship. In spite of 
your circumstances. Let's look back up. See, before Peter says, um, your enemy, you know, that the devil is, is like a roaring lion, he says something interesting. Look back up at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. See, we have a lot of anxiety about moving into two cities. A lot. We got timelines, deadlines. There's a lot of anxiety about, you know, what if we don't get it right? What if, what if, what if? And the way that we win that battle is to cast our anxieties. The way that you humble yourself is by casting all your anxieties on the Lord. See, that takes humility. For me to say, you know what? You've got a better plan than I've got. I'm going to take all my anxieties and I'm going to throw them on you. That takes humility. Because let's face it, most of us think a lot of the time that we have a better plan. See, this is what alarms me. We could hire the right staff, build the right buildings, get the right musicians, play the right songs, have the right light show, attract a crowd, and really be successful. And God not be here. How long would it even take us to know? The only way that we're in danger of that is if we don't pray. That's the only way that that's possible. And I want to clarify, because in our society, we tend to think about people that pray a lot as going, well, they're too heavenly minded for earthly good. They want to spend all their time praying. I'm not talking about praying and not doing anything. That would be foolish. I'm not saying today with Rome and Somerville needing to have work done that we ought to take the next three weeks and just pray. That wouldn't be very wise, would it? What I am saying is, what we have to do is pray as we do it. What I am saying is we have to throw ourselves at God and say, God, you know what? You love Somerville and Rome a lot more than I do. You have a much greater desire for your kingdom to come in Somerville and Rome than I do. In fact, any love that I have for the people of these areas is only because you've given it to me. Otherwise, I would be completely self-absorbed. I wouldn't care about pe the people in Rome or Somerville at all. It's only because he gives us love for our communities that we can care. So that's what I want us to lean into, to say, God, you love them a lot more, and you've got a much bigger plan than I've got. If we stick to our plan, we're going to limit God. It's a real little plan. I believe that. Compared to what God wants to do in our communities, in our region, it would be easy for us to just go, well, 
we got Rome and Somerville and they're successful. Man, God's moving. I think God has a much bigger plan than that. Do I know what it is? Nope. Can we know what it is? Yep. How? Pray. As we go. As we do. When Paul says pray without ceasing, he's not talking about locking yourself away as a monk and just praying. It's about that place of being in worship and prayer all the time in your heart. Being aware of God. God conscious. God, you're here with me. While I'm swinging this hammer. You're here with me. God, will you let everybody that walks in this building that's nasty right now, will you let them experience your glory as it, as it becomes a place of refuge? Would you let the homeless people that come here, God, would you let them experience the real food, the bread of life as we feed them? See, Daniel... Well, I'll, I'll get that in a minute. Here's what I want you to do right now. Everybody take your phone out. This is one of the only times that maybe you'll get the chance to not, you don't have to secretly text in church. I mean, I, we all know that people text in church, okay? But you don't have to do it secretly. If you're willing, here's what I want you to do. I want you to send me a text. It's gonna, the, my number's gonna come up up here. I want you to send me a, I want you to text the word pray to that number right there. And here's what's going to happen. It's 21 days from now till March the 1st. Every day for the next 21 days, I'm going to send you a text. It's going to be real simple. It's going to have a verse and it won't be a reference. I'll actually have the verse and it'll have a prayer point. It might say, um, Drew campus, uh, Drew um, and his family, campus pastor at Rome. Or it might say Jared, campus pastor at Somerville and his family. It might say uh, funding, you know, it might say our elders. Different, I don't know what it'll say. But for the next 21 days, that'll give us all the opportunity to read one verse that's focused on prayer together and to say a quick prayer together that we know that we're all praying the same thing. There's something unifying about the fact of just knowing, you know what, man, our whole church, sometime during the day, they all said a prayer for the same thing. And they read one verse that's the same thing. And we're kind of, if for just that two minutes, we're on the same page. There's something really unique about that. And I really think that we'll begin to see some changes happen just in... In our, in our midst as we do that. It, I'll also put it up on Facebook, or somebody will put it up on Facebook, so it'll be on there as well. Um, I'm going to finish up now. The band's going to come back up. But when I was talking about, like, you know, it not being a thing for monks, you know, prayer, locking yourself away, I want you to think about this. See, Daniel, he was the head of a big area He had much more secular responsibility in his job than anybody in this room. He was full-time and then some. I mean, think about it. He's like the governor or, 
or you know, the Secretary of State. This dude was very entrenched in a secular job of helping run a huge kingdom. And yet, and yet, prayer was foundational for him. See, I don't think Daniel wanted to die any more than you or I do. Did he understand that what he was doing was the death sentence? Yes, he did. But here's what I think he had that we don't have yet. He understood that what God thinks matters most. What God says matters most. And if what God thinks matters most, then we'll go to him first. If what he says matters most, it's his opinion that we'll seek first. Do we seek others? Yes, we do. There's wisdom in the counsel of many. But we go to God first. In our busyness, we can forget God matters most. What he says matters most. And he will speak to us. He is so more concerned about Rome and Somerville. He will give us clear direction. Guys, he really will. He is, I believe with all my heart, he is leading our leaders and leading them clearly. He's going to continue to lead the the transition team that will help make decisions. But the more we pray, the more clear we will know our purpose and our power, his power. We We can move into these cities with a clarity of mind and see him move in such a more powerful way than if we just do it on our own. So if you'll stand up, I want to lead us in a time of prayer. Winning this battle starts with, if you're a person who has never accepted Christ, then the first battle is, you know what, man, I I have no idea what you're talking about, but I recognize that, um, that I've been doing it on my own. For the rest of us, It's a return. It's an act of in the midst of all the chaos. Nobody here has a simple life. And I don't know you all, but I just know life. I know life well enough to know there's not a single person in here that doesn't have some kind of issue going on because it's life. But in the midst of that, being able to worship, and that's one of the the Hebrew words where it's talking about what Daniel was doing, that's what it's talking about is worship. It's not just that he was praying. He was worshiping his God in the midst of your chaos, being able to turn to God and go, you know what? My blip in eternity is really short and you are worthy regardless of my circumstances. I'm gonna worship you. I'm gonna seek your face and not just your hand and I'm going to worship.